Thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. Well, we're glad you're here with us today because we're going to continue our series in the book of Romans. In Romans, as we talked about this year, it's important. It's a great book of the Bible. It's a powerful book and it, it's personal. It connects with each one of us because it's a book that's built on relationships and it provides us some understanding from God's Word, so we call it a doctrinal book as well. It allows us to see life against the backdrop of the changes that occur in life, the the pains and difficulties, and the uncertainties that we all experience, we all feel. I was looking at the books out in our Welcome Center, and we had a, a book out there on worry and anxiety, and I noticed that the entire stack is already gone, and I I said to some folks from the staff this morning, we're going to have to get more of those, of that book. And I think the reason for that is we all feel unsettled in our lives today. There is difficulty in our world. There's political, societal, or cultural and moral upset in the world around us. We all understand that. And the funny thing is the church in Rome was in a very similar place in their time as we are in our lives today. And so Paul writes to the Roman church to present the reality of the gospel against that dark, uncertain, and difficult backdrop so that they would indeed understand, just as our job is today, that we would understand the faith that Christ has given to us, that we would be able to explain it, to internalize it, to take it into our hearts and to apply it to our lives. And that's why we're learning this year from the book of Romans. We are seeking to equip ourselves and prepare to live out our faith in the real world. And the real world is a difficult place. We want to be prepared. And as it's my son's 21st birthday, I was thinking about this today. And I remember, I mentioned this before, when my son was about 10 years old, he packed up his little backpack with all of his supplies and camping gear and decided he was going to go out and stay overnight in the woods behind our house. He didn't ask us. He told us he was doing this. I know that he had Twinkies and a few other things that he wanted. And he had them all in his backpack and he built himself a little tent out of his tarp and hung it between two trees, you know, his, uh, his slack line and set everything up. And he stayed in that tent. And I'm not sure if he stayed in it all night because when I came in in the morning, he was in the basement of the house we lived in laying on a couch, he told me he had just come in, and I'll never know for sure. But why did he do that? He wanted to prove himself. He felt that he had something to prove to the world. And it's so much of what we do, and we don't understand in our faith that God isn't asking us to prove anything. And when we talk in the Bible about this idea of faith, God wants us to understand that when he says faith alone, that alone means alone. But we deal with this idea of expectations. I was thinking about this. You guys know I'm a sports fan. And it's starting to build up on the internet already. If you watch college basketball, there is this young man that plays for Duke We'll ignore the fact that they're called the Blue Devils. We'll just take that out of the conversation. And his name is Zion Williamson, which is a really cool name. Good job, Zion's parents. That's a cool name. 
But this guy is incredible. He's a, he seems to be just a wonderful young man. When they interview him, I think, boy, you answered that really well for being just 19 years old. I certainly wouldn't have answered that as well at 19, I'm sure. But all the expectations of basketball are already being placed on this young man's shoulders. Cleveland Cavalier fans can only hope that we lose every other game this year, which is a real possibility, I might add. And we must hope that we get this young man, that he elects for the draft, we have the number one pick, and then blammo, we can have this young man in all of the hopes that Cleveland sports fans are, always, are already placing on this young man. He hasn't even decided if he's going to stay in college or declare for the NBA draft, and everyone is already putting all their expectations on him. Much as I might tell you Browns fans, since I'm not a Browns fan, I don't hate the Browns, I'm just not a Browns fan, you're doing this to poor Baker Mayfield already as well, right? Right, so Cleveland fans understand this. We like to take all of our expectations and place them on one individual, which I don't know is particularly fair to those individuals who will remain nameless even when they take their talents elsewhere. But why do we do that? When people have this desire to prove themselves, we sometimes, we don't help out. We heap all the expectations on them and we expect them to come in, whether it's in life, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in sports or, or business or politics or whatever, to be our deliverer. We want to put all of our faith in them. We want to put all of our trust in them and they indeed as human beings want to prove themselves that they are deliverers. Well, I think it's because we all know that we need someone to deliver us. We just oftentimes place all the weight and burden of ourselves on the wrong person. We do this in our marriages. Parents, I think sometimes we can do this with our children. Or we expect our children to justify and deliver and prove our value, just like my son ran out in the woods to prove to me. He wanted to show that he was ready to deliver himself. He could take care of himself. He didn't need anyone. And the scripture is all about this idea of deliverance. This idea of deliverance. And we all know we need to deliver. We know that we're, we're broken, that we're bankrupt before God. And we understand, but yet sometimes I think we miss this idea. And as we Looked in the book of Romans. Romans 3.23 reminds us that we've all sinned. All means all. We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. And you see, the funny thing in that Roman church with all of its difficulties and all of its uncertainties, the Jewish Christians there, they said, yeah, we've all sinned, but we're still God's people. And God loves us a little more than these these other people, these Gentile people, you know, we have, we have this entire thing figured out. We have this heritage from our background. In fact, we can prove it. We jump through some pretty big hoops. They're flaming hoops. We get circumcised. Think about that. I'm not going to get gross because there's going to be a lot in our scripture here in a moment about circumcision. So you say, I'm serious about following God. And somebody says, oh, really? You got a knife? It's scary sometimes how much we want to prove our faith. And in the Old Testament, God had folks show that they were part of his 
covenant, his relationship, family. But yet, in God's word, later on, God says, well, no, it was always about faith. It was always about faith. You Jewish folks that think you have a leg up on everyone else, you don't. And you Gentile folks that think that you don't have the baggage that the Jewish folks have, you don't. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all, but as we're going to see, God's deliverance comes from faith alone. And just as all means all, alone means alone. The gift that God gives has nothing to do with our worthiness. I was thinking about that and it's something we don't teach our kids anymore. We teach our kids that they deserve, in fact, that they're entitled to things. I remember when I was a little kid, we used to watch movies like Willy Wonka, where Charlie is still at the very end of the movie, stunned that Willy Wonka is giving him all of his kingdom, all that he has. That used to be the kind of expectation we grew up with. You don't deserve anything, but if you go out and work hard and prove yourself, you're going to get what you deserve. But you see, that's not God's word either, as we're going to see. All means all. Alone means alone. And God's word, because of who we are as sinful people, is all about deliverance. So let's open up today, Romans 3.31, right at the end of chapter 3 through verse 12 in chapter 4. Let's read this together. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means... On the contrary, we uphold the law. And they're talking there about the Old Testament. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For it, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? There's a lot about circumcision in this, I warned you. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the father, of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. A lot about circumcision. It'll make sense, I promise. I promise we're going to make sense of this entire passage this morning. In fact, we're going to take in chapter 4 two weeks here to go through it, and you'll see this will make sense as we go along. So we see here very, very early in the passage that they're talking about this idea of faith. And one of our pillars of our tradition, the Reformed tradition, the idea of faith alone. And let's be honest, 
Saying we're saved by faith is tough for us because we're skeptical people, right? Have you received one of those emails? Dear sir or madam, I am a prince in Nigeria. I have gold, much gold that I would like to give to you. Or someone you don't know died and left you five million pounds. Has anybody ever got one of those emails? What do you do with that? You respond right away. No, you, you put it in your spam email. You mark it as junk because you hope that if everybody marks it as junk, whoever your email provider is will say, this is not a real email. This is fake news, so to speak. It's not true. Because we all know the old adage, if it's too good to be true, it's not true. It's not true. You see, in our world, we don't give other people the benefit of the doubt on one hand, and yet on the other hand, we expect everyone to, to be perfect, to be that deliverer, to be that perfect picture. But let's talk about benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to get into this too deeply, and we're not going to get political. This week, and this past week, even before that a little bit, they had the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and there's a picture of a young man and another older man, and he's beating a drum in front of this young man's face. Everybody's seen this picture by now. We're not getting into politics of this at all. Everyone rushed to make a decision, a judgment of what they thought about that situation. Who was justified? Who was righteous? Who was wrong? And what punishment somebody deserved? Both ways, right? Have you guys seen, how many of you avoided social media this week just because of that? Right? Again, this isn't about the politics of the situation. This is about our human nature and our desire for justification, whether it's for us or for other people. We want to be justified. We want to justify ourselves or prove our commitment, prove our righteousness. In the time of Paul, these folks called the Judaizers were doing that with circumcision. That's why it's all over this passage. You're serious about your faith? You better prove it. In fact, I'm going to tell you how you can prove it to me because I know what's right and I'm going to tell you. That pretty much sums up my experience on the internet this past week. It's our human nature. We all want to have that hot take, tell others off, and feel good being right. And what Paul has just gotten done telling us is we're not right. And when we start with this idea that all means all and that we all are sinful, it changes the rest of us. In our world today, we don't consider circumcision a part of our faith as Christians or whatever other religions folks are into. But in our world today, even those who would say they're not a part of church still do what Paul was fighting with the Judaizers. For my generation and those younger than me, usually it involves getting ink. Getting tattooed. If you're serious about something, you get a neck tattoo. That's serious, right? I saw a guy at the motorcycle show, I was in the International Motorcycle Show, with a tattoo of Mighty Mouse on his neck. I'm not sure why he has a tattoo of Mighty Mouse on his neck, but I can tell you that he has a serious love for Mighty Mouse. To put that right below his earlobe. It was, it, was a, it was a rather becoming look. I'm glad he likes it. If he hears this podcast, don't come hunt me down. 
you look like a rather rough individual. I wasn't going to say to him, hey, uh, so you like Mighty Mouse. But people, to show their commitment to something, will get a tattoo in today's world. Usually on their neck or something, so somebody really sees it. But in the more traditional sense, people will post it on the internet. And if you don't share it, you don't care. If you don't do this, Jesus is mad at you. Share if you agree. Right? I never share, just so you know. <laughs> How many of you wish you did not get the... Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Or you put a sticker on your car, your computer, whatever. A sticker on something to show that it is serious to you. I am so serious, I put a sticker on the rear windshield of my vehicle. That's how serious that is to me. Right? We want to show who we are. We want to prove ourselves and our righteousness, much like my son wanted to do. We all want to get to heaven and say, hey, I've got this figured out. And so what Paul deals with today in this passage, and we're going to take a couple weeks to go through this, what Paul deals with today are four different ways he likes to explain. He's actually making the case that we aren't saved by the things we think save us. Those things don't really make a difference. So we're going to cover two of those this morning briefly, and then the other two you see up there we're going to do later in chapter 4 next week. Okay? Two of those this morning. So against this human compulsion to prove ourselves, to show how serious we are, these arguments against people like the Judaizers and people much in our world today are human nature, Paul says four things. He says you're not saved by what you do in your daily life. He says no, faith is more than just what you do. What you do comes out of your faith, but you're not saved by whether you check a couple boxes and do everything the right way. It's more than just one thing like circumcision or whether you showed up to church every Sunday. It's more than that. It's not that those things are all bad things, but that's not what saves us. And the second thing we're going to say is God has always made it clear that being a part of the religious life is not magical. We're going to have uh, the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. We have a baptism coming up this spring, some different things. And we consider our sacraments in the church we call them means of grace. It's a way that God does bless us, but they don't save us. Baptism in the Protestant world, we don't believe that baptism saves you. In the Roman Catholic Church, that's something that folks are taught as a part of means of salvation. As we study God's word, we say, well, no, that doesn't save you. It's not that it's a bad thing. It's a great thing, and God says we should do it. But it's a way that God's grace is shared with us, but you can you know, on your deathbed, confess Christ, never be baptized, and go be with the Lord. We believe that. So you're not saved by all the religious stuff we do. Those religious things don't magically save us. They're good for us. The third thing, this one's interesting for us in America, we're not saved by keeping all of the rules in the world around us. Not even moral rules, let alone societal, civil, or government laws, uh, religious laws. The Ten Commandments are great, but they don't save us. And as we're going to see later on in the book of Romans, we're actually breaking some of them. A lot. A lot. So while they're good, all laws are good. Uh, you know, I want you to obey all the laws, especially the tax laws, because they're so important if the IRS is listening to this podcast. But it's important that, you know, jaywalking, uh, you know, uh, it sounds funny. I saw a guy jumped out last night in front of a car in front of me and myself, and I almost hit this guy because I didn't see him. So, you know, those laws, they're good, but they don't save us. 
And the last thing is your individual performance, this idea from needing to prove ourselves, our individual ability, our intellect, our stamina. Uh, in sports, we call this our motor. Our, our, we're going to get down, we're going to grit our teeth, we're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we're going to get it done. That's a great thing, and you'll go far in this world if you have that, but it doesn't save your soul. It doesn't save your soul. In fact, that's what we need to learn this morning. They're good things, but they don't save us because we're, we're broken sinners. And the reality is the way we understand Scripture radically affects the way we think of our relationship with God. This makes sense, but yet we don't see this. You see, as Reformed folks, we believe in what's called the covenantal view, and I'm not going to bore you, but you can impress someone in the world around you this week, say, my church holds to the covenantal view of Scripture. You may not even know what that means, but you will in a minute. The covenantal view is simply that God has always intended to save us by grace through faith. That's not something that changed in the Garden of Eden. It's not something that changed from the time of Abraham. It's not something that changed in the New Testament. And God still does it the same way now. God's plan to save us, to redeem us, was always one of deliverance. Salvation was always God's intention. The entire scripture is God's plan for redemption. The creation, the fall, the redemption at the cross, and the restoration yet to come is one uniform plan that God promised that we weren't going to be saved by works we see in the book of Genesis we blew that and then the covenant that God gives us in the rest of scripture it's all grace and it's about faith that's our view of scripture that's what many churches teach today that's the covenantal view it's one covenant of God's love and grace now there are some churches and these are the churches that would say for example that you can lose your salvation they teach this thing called the dispensational view, and that's God has chosen to operate differently in different times of history. God was originally doing this in the Garden of Eden, and then he did this in the time of Abraham, and then we get kind of toward the time of Daniel, it's a little different, and then the New Testament is kind of different, and now we're in the church, and that's the age of the church, and there's different rules and different ways that God chooses to save people in different times. But the reality that Paul teaches us here is that's not the case. We've always been saved by grace through faith. Faith alone means faith alone because all sin has always meant that all have sinned. It's one uniform testimony of how God has decided to save us. And in fact, Paul says, let's go back to two heroes of the faith. To you Judaizers and you folks that think this is different, let's go and look at one person here first. He goes, Abraham, Father Abraham, you guys know him? You guys remember singing that song? Father Abraham. He says, okay, Father Abraham. Abraham was saved in one way and one way only by faith. For what does the scripture say in, in verse 3 there? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Paul there is quoting Genesis chapter 15. That's Genesis 15. So Paul says, let's go back to the beginning when mankind had fallen and God comes to the first guy, Abraham, and says, hey, you're going to be my people. I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. And here's how this is going to work. And God lays out all these promises. And Abraham looks, and none of those promises have happened. And Abraham says, I believe you. I'm going I'm to leave everything, and I'm going to follow you. 
I'm going to make some mistakes, but I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to do some crazy things. And even when I think you're testing me, I'm going to offer to even sacrifice my son. And my son Isaac, I'm going to do that. And God says, no, no. You're going to believe I'm going to do the sacrificing of my son. From the very beginning, it was all about faith. There was no evidence. There was no anything at the beginning. God didn't even give them a son. And he said, follow me. I'm going to make you a great nation. And it says in God's word that he believed and God said, you're mine. You're good. You're justified. You belong to me. He didn't do anything. He did lots of great things after that, but the linchpin of his faith was quite simply that he believed. So what God says from the very beginning, and Paul says, don't you see? All those other things that come after are because he believed. It wasn't anything magical he did. It was that God called him and he believed. And he says, how about David? How about David, the greatest king in the Bible? How about David? Look what it says about David in verse 7. Blessed are those whose deeds are forgiven and whose sins are, are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a great leader, but he was not perfect. Do you guys remember a story in 2 Samuel 12 when David had sinned? He had taken Bathsheba and she was pregnant, so he puts... Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, up at the line. And they back off and let Uriah die. David sets up, he assassinates one of his best friends because he's having an affair with his best friend's wife. Let that sink in. And Nathan the prophet comes and says, hey, there's this guy and he's, he raises this little, this little lamb, this little ewe, and it's like one of his very own and he loves it and cares for it. And this other man comes in to town to visit a rich neighbor and the rich neighbor rather than taking one of his own sheep takes this one guy the only thing he has takes it away for his very own to feed his friend that came from out of town and David gets mad and says that guy should be killed and Nathan looks at David and says that's you that's you for all the things you've done right David for all the things you've done right you are not perfect in fact what you've done is terrible it's terrible. And yet, as Paul reminds us here, God says that David's sins, even the horrible things he did, despite being the guy that followed God so well in his life, his sins were forgiven and they were covered. No matter how much David tried to prove himself, and no matter how much we try to prove ourselves, our sin always finds us out. Whatever you think you've got under control right now, it's going to find you out. It's going to find you out. And God says, that's why I don't save you, because you aren't perfect. You don't obey. You're broken by your sin. Whatever hoop you jump through, however complicated your process to prove yourself, you're still a sinner. We talked about blessings in the Beatitudes. Blessings aren't about externally having everything perfect. It's about this internal sense that God loves you and he knows you and he cares for you anyway. That's how David felt when Nathan went to him and said, I know what you've done, but God says it's going to be hard and there's going to be consequences because sin hurts us and hurts other people. But despite even those consequences, David, God 
loves you anyway. In fact, he's going to cover that sin. He's going to have a king that sits on your throne forever. He's going to pay for all of that sin. He's going to make it all right. And that's what Paul wants us to see this day. Faith is God's gift. It's God's gift. And he uses it to cover us, to mark us, despite our circumstances, despite the external pressures that we put on ourselves and others put on us to show that we're worth it, that we can get it done, that we can be that deliverer that somebody's looking for, that we can prove ourselves. God says all of that doesn't matter. All that matters is that God calls you, that God says that he sees Jesus when he sees you. And that's why we're righteous. Look at this passage here. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Paul here says, it's like if you work for something, it's not a gift. So today's my son's birthday. So I, Manny and I mailed him a box. It's got some presents and some things he wants in it and some different things, a care package. Now, when he gets that care package, you know, whether I think Monday or Tuesday it's supposed to get delivered to the post office at college, if he opens that up and says, Dad, Mom, this is great. Thank you so much. And we say, you're welcome. That'll be $226.42. Wait a minute, I didn't add in the shipping. Hold on. Is that a gift? First of all, I'm a terrible parent if I do that, right? Happy birthday, son. Now pay. It's a gift. You don't earn it. In fact, we can't earn it, even though we want to work and we want to earn it and we want to prove ourselves. And there's so many churches that teach this, that teach this, that you have to earn it, that you can earn it. And I'm not just talking about you know, old churches. I'm not just picking on the Roman Catholic Church here. There are so many churches that say, unless you do this this way or have this that way, there are a lot of new churches. You know, you know why you're sick right now? You know why you're hurting? Because you haven't earned your salvation enough. That's not what God's Word teaches. It doesn't matter what I think or what some other preacher thinks or what anybody said. What matters is what God has said. If you work for something, it's not free, but God's gift of salvation is a gift. It's a gift that he gives for us, that he laid down his own life, that his son came and died on the cross. We started today talking about expectations and the need to prove ourselves. We have them in lives and sports and our relationships in our workplaces, inside ourselves, voices that tell us this isn't enough, you're not enough. Maybe someone in your life, maybe there's still a voice ringing in your heart, in your head, where somebody told you you weren't good enough. What I want you to know this morning is that God says, you're enough, I love you just as you are. I'm not going to leave you where you are, but I take you just the way you are. And he says to you, this isn't about you, it's about me. This is my story of deliverance, and I am enough. I've always loved you. I've always sought you. I've always called you. By faith alone. Alone always has meant alone. I am enough. My son is enough. And you are mine. 
And that's what I want us to remember this day. So as you go out this week, as we come to the Lord's table and close this morning, what will you do with the greatest gift of all time? A gift freely given to us and a gift that we are called to give away to others. What will we do with that gift? How will we share it? Last week the church was closed and yet so many of you, I know you shared with other people you went out, you helped a neighbor, you did something. Some of us got together, we went and helped some folks from here. But yet that's the call of the church, that in every small transaction, we give away the grace of God, the hope of salvation, that we know we're all messed up. And so when someone says, no, no, get away from me, or someone else judges someone and says, hey, you're not good enough, you're a terrible person. That we stop and say, no, we're all saved, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. And because I understand that, I can love you sacrificially. Friends, that's what we come to celebrate at this table today. Because Jesus Christ came. And he walked on this earth and he laid down his life as a ransom for many. And on that last night when he was with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it saying, Take and eat, for this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took and he poured and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. That covenant of grace that we talked about. And he said, take and drink of it, all of you. Friends, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we celebrate Christ Jesus. We celebrate him till he comes again. This table is not the table of just one church or of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but this is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is open to all those who confess Christ alone as Savior and Lord. But we don't want to come to this table in a manner that's unworthy, so would you join me as we confess our sin together? Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all, we confess our sins which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against you. We turn from them in this moment, and we turn back to you. We seek your forgiveness and grace. Just thinking about our sin grieves our heart. Lord, we know grace your heart. Have mercy upon us, Heavenly Father. Forgive us and heal our lives. Transform us and use us for your glory. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. 